So welcome today to our next lesson in our series, Acting Like Saul But Becoming Like David. Has anybody in here found yourselves acting a little like Saul in the past? It's really tempting, isn't it? Um, and we've learned a lot about Saul and his weaknesses. We're going to look today, though, at David and some of his strengths. We're going to look at two episodes in the life of David. We're going to look at David as he transports the ark and what faux pas he commits there. And then we're going to look at that famous episode of David and Bathsheba. So let's pick up where we are. Saul has now died. His son, Jonathan, who is David's best friend, has died. And David is deeply grieving the loss. Now, we would assume that he immediately becomes king after that, but he doesn't. He has to wait another seven years. There's still a lot of haggling over who's going to be the next king and whether David is going to arise to that or not. Well, God had already ordained that, but he still had trouble to go through. So it's seven years in addition to the other seven years that he was running from cave to cave. So a total of 14 years before David ascends to the throne. And so it's been really hard and he finally gets to be the king of all of Israel. Well, when the Philistines heard that David has now been fully anointed king, they are on the warpath. We've heard their names now over all of these series of lessons, and they continue to, uh, to come at the Israelites and to pound on them, and they go in full force search for David. Let's read what it says in 2 Samuel 5, verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. But David was told they were coming, so he went into the stronghold. So they come at David, ready to capture the king and take over Israel. But David went to the stronghold, he fortified his troops, and he successfully defended the Philistines. Now, this is important because it sets us up for the next thing that happens in David's life that is a real testing ground for him. Just to get some background, uh, the Israelites and the Philistines had fought many times, and the last time they had fought, the Philistines captured the ark. They had the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they were thinking it's kind of a lucky charm for them and, and that it brought them victory. And so they held on to this Ark. They took the Ark. They uh, had abused the Ark. It had been moved around in ways that were not appropriate. But the Israelites were able now to get the Ark so that they could take it back to Jerusalem. Well, there is a protocol for moving the ark around. David broke the protocol. See, David thought it would be a good idea to get a new cart for the ark. So he gets this bright, shiny cart to put the ark on, and he picks the strongest men in his army, and they make this big deal about a shiny new way to get the ark back to them. Well, 
he broke protocol. He actually violated the law of Israel because the ark could only be transported by the Levites. Remember, the Levites were the tribe of the, of the law, and so they were the judges, and they were the only ones who could transport the ark. David did not obey that law. And see, it, it was even so specific that it couldn't even be on a vehicle. It could only be transported on the shoulders of the Levites. Oh, me, that David, he forgets to follow the protocol because the sanguine that he is wants to make a big show of things. We learned last week that he had eaten the holy bread instead of um, passing on that because it could only be eaten by priests. So do you see that David, as wonderful as he is and a man after God's own heart, he also sinned and he would commit errors of judgment just like we do and just like Saul did, but David always made it right. Well, this time uh, he, has the, he has the ark transported back and he uh, gets it back and then he has to, has to maneuver things to get this set right because what happened is that the man who transported it ended up being killed. God took his life. And David had to have remorse for that and repent for that. And he got it right with God. And so the next thing he did then was get that ark actually taken back to Jerusalem in the right way. And so he gets that ark and he gets it on the shoulders of the Levites and he gets that back to Jerusalem. Well, that was time for celebration. And so he gets back to Jerusalem and it's, everybody is having a party and celebrating and enjoying the festivities and bringing God's ark back into David's new city was a wonderful thing. There's music, there's dancing, there's fun. And David is right there in the middle of the celebration. He's enjoying it. He's with priests. He's with other, those who are following God and loving God and they are celebrating. And uh, David took off his royal robe, and he is, 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 so there is some misunderstanding there and maybe some misinterpretation or, you know, cover-up, I'm not sure. But some say he was dancing naked in the streets of Jerusalem. Well, that didn't sit well with some members of the royal family. He actually did have a tunic on, but he didn't have on the royal robe. And Michal, his wife, was standing up in the palace. She is looking down over all of the celebrating and she sees her husband in his ephod, which is his tunic. It would be like a nightshirt, perhaps. The other Levites are wearing the same thing, but he's not in his royal robe. And she is having a fit. She looks down over him. She is sneering. She has those arms crossed. She is glaring at him. And she is living in some disappointment in her husband. He comes home and she gives him a good telling off. She did not think it was dignified for the king of Jerusalem, the king over all of Israel, to be showing off like that in his sanguine manner. Well, she set out to meet him, and here's what she said. We read in 2 Samuel 6, verse 20, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. 
disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. Well, David goes into defense mode and he begins to explain what it was about. And here's what he says. I was dancing before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this. Well, there's a follow-up verse. It's, it's on a few verses later. And I think it's interesting. It said, Michal remained childless throughout her entire life. Read between the lines there. You know, notice that that ark was back home and David wanted to celebrate. He wanted to find a way to worship the Lord and the way he found was by praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord through his dancing. You know, that is a beautiful way to express worship to the Lord. And sometimes we judge people when we see that they are worshiping in an extravagant way and there's movement and there's motion and there's raising of the hands and there's swaying to the music. But David said, this is how I chose to stand before the Lord and worship him. And then he added, I'm even going to be more foolish in front of the Lord. It's a reminder that it's okay to be foolish in front of the Lord. And, and he welcomes our tears of joy. He welcomes our hands of, in praise. He welcomes our movement and swaying because he wants us to worship the way we're comfortable worshiping him. Well, David uh, now believes that his ark, this ark that he has brought back, needs a majestic home. And so David begins to plan and he begins to dream. And he wants to build a temple. Well, Nathan is now the prophet that pours into David and advises him. And so David goes to, to Nathan for a consult. And this honorable prophet of God hears all about David's plans. But Nathan speaks this truth into him and he said, you know, it's not for you to build this. God has another plan for you. You're not the one to build this temple. This is going to be reserved for your descendants. But here's your purpose in this. You're to provide all of the means for which to build this temple. You are to provide all of the, the gold, all the jewels, all the finances in order to build the temple. You see, sometimes God has not the biggest dream for us, but the one that's going to benefit the greater, that's going to benefit the next generation. And that's what he was using David for. David was disappointed in that, but he understood God's plan. 2 Samuel 7 verse 16 reads this way, Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So that was the plan and the purpose that God had for David at that time. And, you know, I'm sure that was such a disappointment for the showy David who, 
who was, uh, had the big personality and he, he had big glorious plans and he wanted to be acknowledged for that and praised for that. But God said, no, just hold back, just hold back. That is not for you, it's for another time. That temple is going to be built. It's not going to be built by David, but it's going to be built by Solomon, his son. And what we know is that all things happen in God's good timing. And see, so we hold on to that promise. Well, David continued with his work as a, uh, the organizing the army of Israel and defending Israel, being their trusted leader. He was a man after God's own heart. And with every setback, David chose to repent and to move forward with every opportunity, with every setback, he had an opportunity. And this is what he's going to do again. Well, temptations are going to come to David. We're going to see how he chooses well when something, somebody catches his eye. Remember, we learned last week um, that script, when scripture talks about eyes, it's very clear that sparkling eyes are eyes that are tuned into God. They're focused on the Lord. And David kept his focus on the Lord until temptation came and something caught his eye. Do y'all remember the TV show, The Simpsons? Well, I was one of those stodgy mothers that wouldn't let my kids watch The Simpsons. Anybody else? I just didn't approve of the behavior of the Simpsons, all that hollering and yelling, and sometimes bad words would come out. So I was going to be the one that never let them watch that. And, and so we didn't, but I do know a lot about their story. I know that there's Homer Simpson, the father, and, and in his family, they have a lot of ridiculous, crazy behavior. And so they were... Uh, the family was, was a family you could look at and think, oh my goodness, I'm so glad we're not like that. And, and so they ha would have this poster that said, see our family. Uh, I bet it's not, it, I bet um, it, you feel better about yours having watched us. And, and so I thought, oh yes, that's exactly who they are. And so I think about David and his family. And, and you, they could have that big poster also and say, watch what we do and feel better about your own. Um, I watched the royal wedding over the weekend, did you? And it was a beautiful. I love all things royal. I read lots of books about uh, the royals. I've followed them through the years. And I also like to know a little bit of the backstory of the royals. And I think their family's much like David's family, isn't it? We look at that family and we can see their family and feel a lot better about our family, can't we? Uh, that's what happens when we start to peel back the curtains of families. We see real life. And so we're going to see real life in the account of David and Bathsheba. It's in Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 11 that we read the story of David and Bathsheba. Now we're going to look at this uh, by examining both perspectives. We're going to look at the story from David's perspective and from Bathsheba's. We're going to ask a lot of questions about what drove them to do the things they did and, and which one was uh, the one that was more responsible as an initiator and was there one that was should be held more accountable than the other? Are they pretty equal in this or was one more abusive than the other? So we're going to dig down into the story and look at both of the people. 
we want to see um, the spectrum of Bathsheba from a passive victim to an active seductress. So let's take a look at this story. Well, let's read in 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now notice that it said in the spring, the kings go off to war. But where was David? Our verse says, he remained in Jerusalem. Shouldn't David have been on the battlefield? Keep that in mind as we see what else happens. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Well, let's look now at Bathsheba and what we've learned about her. She's beautiful. We know her father is Eliam and we know her husband is Uriah. She is married. And we're going to see actions of both David and Bathsheba. And the first action we see is that Bathsheba is bathing. Now, there have been lots of, of different interpretations of what was happening as she was bathing and where she was bathing. There are some that say she was sort of an exhibitionist out there to tempt or seduce David. If you look at the art from the time and, or you listen to some of the uh, songs about Bathsheba, we, we read or we see her, her actually on a roof and she's naked in the open air. And so it appears she is attempting maybe to seduce whoever is watching. But then let's look at the other part of that story and the obligatory act of purification. And let's see what may have actually been going on as Bathsheba was bathing. Now, the text said that David was on the roof. There is no mention that Bathsheba is on a roof. It doesn't say where she was. Now, the story is set during the spring, and, and the kings were to be at war, and even if Bathsheba were, had a visible, uh, visible sight line toward the palace, she would have expected her king to have been far away. That's where her husband was, and most of the men in the area were away at war. And then we look at this other layer of tradition, and bathing outdoors was really not something that was scandalous. It was not even something that was immodest. Oh, but in our modern eyes, it is, isn't it? See, this was in that era before indoor plumbing, and men and women often bathed outside, and they had an enclosed area in their courtyard. And this is where Bathsheba was likely cleaning herself and was probably mostly dressed, as was the custom. There's a Hebrew word for bathing that's used in the scripture, and, and the word that's used is the same word, whether it is for bathing the entire body or only washing hands. 
So the interpretation is really wide open, isn't it? Let's look at the next verse. Then David sent messages, messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness and then she went back home. There's a lot of action in that, isn't there? A lot going on. And again, you know, we look at scripture and, and we don't get the passage of time. And so it's as if I should pause after each period and let's give some time for uh, some action to take place. <laughs> Bathsheba, there is a mention that she purified herself. Well, purification occurs one week after bleeding from a menstrual cycle. That is a ritual bath. So there's an indication there that's what she had done. She had purified herself. Let's look at the other four things that happen in there. David sent for her. He sent his messengers. And Bathsheba went to David. And then David did sleep with her. And then Bathsheba went home. Both parties are involved in the action in that one verse. But there's controversy in the interpretation of one of those uh, parts of the verse. It's the second sentence. She came to him. The idea is that she went to him and slept with, with him. But there is also uh, an interpretation in a Greek translation, an early translation of the Bible that reads the opposite, that David went to her. So which is it? We don't know, do we? There's that different understanding from an early Greek translation that said he went to her house instead of her going to his house. It doesn't really change the end of the story, but it makes us think. It makes us consider who is the initiator, who was the one who was uh, actually causing the action to happen. Was there one who was more aggressive than another? than the other, what was really happening between the two homes. It's, it just gives us something to consider. Remember when we read scripture, become curious. How did it happen? Who are these people? What are their motives? And dig into it and it opens up an entire different understanding of scripture. Well, uh, in that early translation that reads, he went to her, it indicated that all the initiative was strictly on David's part. But when you read our modern translations, it's she obliged to what the messenger said and went to him. Now, as, since David was king, could any subject, especially a woman, refuse to go to the king when summoned? Another consideration for us, isn't it, to the, look at, again, the role of women under the subjection of a very powerful man. Well, and then there is a passage of time between verse 4 and verse 5 that we don't get in reading through just one verse to another because it says the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So now we have given voice to Bathsheba. She speaks. This is the next action we see from her. 
And so she uh, sends a message to David announcing her pregnancy. She has now handed over responsibility to David. Imagine delivering that news to the king of Israel. She was a married woman. David was a married man. You can't help but think about what was going on in her mind. What would the consequences be? Would she be rejected? Would she be accepted? Would he have her removed? Perhaps, though, she really wanted to have a child by the king of Israel. Maybe she wanted to be the queen. Could she have been conniving? We just don't know. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Notice that David goes into action immediately. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was doing. Do y'all get the chit-chat going on there? Yes, because we know the other side of the story. Poor Uriah knows nothing, and it just seems as if the, the king is just trying to have comfortable conversation and to find out what's going on on the battlefield. But David has become a man of action He's making small talk, and then he implements plan A. Then, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. See, that would be a cleansing process. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Notice David sending gifts now. But Uriah slept at the entrance to that palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? You know, David had a master plan there, didn't he? If he could just get Uriah to go home, cleanse himself, and go into the house and sleep with Bathsheba, then the pregnancy would have a very clear understanding, wouldn't it? Well, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I, how could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Wow. Uriah not knowing David's plan, was living a life of integrity, wasn't he? Let me tell you a little bit about integrity. Integrity comprise, is comprised of two things, truthfulness in your words and morality in your actions. And so Uriah was showing integrity of both his words and his actions. And in doing so, he thwarts David's plan A. He didn't go home and he didn't sleep with his wife. So David now feels compelled to move to plan B. 
Verse 12, Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Once again, Uriah did the next right thing, didn't he? He was staying loyal to the plan. He was showing his integrity. I can't go home when all my men are at war. I'll just stay right here. So he slept on the mat outside along with the servants. David now needs to move to plan C. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David's final scheme had come into action, hadn't it? He put Uriah on the front line and had him killed. This is David, a man after God's own heart. See, David took a wrong turn. He took a wrong turn early on. He left that highway of holiness. He left the righteous road the right path, and he took a detour. See, no matter the role that Bathsheba played, it, it doesn't really matter in the end. What matters is that David, a man after God's own heart, appointed the king of Israel, took matters in his own hands, and he made decisions that clearly violated God's law. How did David, a man after God's own heart, justify what he did? How do you think that he tried to ease his conscience? What story did he begin to tell himself? How much time did he spend plotting and scheming and implementing a cover-up? Had David now become rebellious? Or was he just stupid? You know, was he having a midlife crisis? Was he on a power trip? Think of all the possibilities it could have been that drove David to make the wrong turn, to leave that path of righteousness and make a turn that gave him a detour. See, once again, we learn from David's wrong choice to examine our own wrong choices and what causes us to make the turn and take a detour. It causes us to start looking at our own emotions. It causes us to look at our own thinking patterns. It causes us to look at our strong will 
every time we're faced with a decision and a temptation. Where did David go wrong? One thing we're going to look at next week is the comparison between Saul and David. And I'm going to be sharing with you again the reminder of the things that they did that went against God's laws. We're going to look at a list of those things. And then we're going to rewind the story. We're going to rewind the story for each. And you'll be doing some of this at your tables and having conversations. You're going to pinpoint the moment when a decision was made that got them off the path. So we're going to look for a moment at what happened with David and Bathsheba. For David, David made his choice when he walked on the roof, didn't he? And he looked. When he looked, that was an opportunity to either look again or look away. It kind of reminds me of the story of Adam and Eve, doesn't it, you? When Eve looked, Scripture says she saw. And what she saw looked good, and then she tasted. And oh my goodness, history repeats itself, doesn't it? So David's moment happened when he looked and didn't look away. See, David forgot to press pause, didn't he? He forgot to speak words of truth to himself. He forgot to remember God's law about taking a step too far that could lead to adultery. The way adultery starts is when something or somebody catches someone's sparkling eye. And then it moves to more thoughts and then to more actions. And that's what the story was for David. And then David thought a cover-up was going to absolve him of all wrongdoing. If Uriah could just sleep with Bathsheba, um, you know, right there when he came home, and then it could appear the baby was his. And then if Uriah couldn't do that, then let's just get rid of Uriah, and then nobody would know, and then I could manufacture this a little bit. So... It looks as if we got married and then she has the baby and then nobody will ever know. But Uriah was upright. Uriah refused to do the next wrong thing. Well, the cover-up always complicates the situation, doesn't it? In 2000, there was an Illinois scientist whose name was William Walsh. And he made this unusual discovery. He chemically examined some strands from the hair of Ludwig von Beethoven. And here's what he discovered. He discovered that Beethoven's body had a hundred times the amount of normal lead that would have been in a person's body. And he concluded that when Beethoven died at the age of 57, it was from lead poisoning. Now, it wasn't as if somebody murdered him. No. When they began to study what had happened to Beethoven, they traced it back to a mineral spa. He used to go to this mineral spa time after time after time in order to relax. 
think about that. The very thing that he thought was going to bring him comfort and help and good things was slowly killing him. He slowly poisoned himself to death. That's what happens in a cover-up. Slowly poisoning oneself to death. The thing you think is making you safer is really putting you in danger. And that's what David did. He thought he was making himself safer, but he jeopardized his relationship with God. Now back to Bathsheba. Do you think she was aware of any of David's plans? Did she know about plan A or B or C? Did they have conversations about it? See, there's a big time lapse where we just don't know. She was at her place and she went to his place and then she went home and then she sent the message back to his place. Were there messages going back and forth? I'll take care of this. You sit tight. Leave it alone. Is she left to wonder? Is she left to worry? Did she leave it all to David? Does she have a voice in this? Was there a path back and forth between the houses? We just don't know. But what we do know is David is the one who made the decisions, and he was the one that was going to have to be accountable for them because that's what the Scripture tells us. Look at what happens when he learns of Uriah's death in verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So Bathsheba does mourn her husband. Now, some have said, oh, those could have just been crocodile tears. Can't you imagine the sisters and the housewives of Jerusalem? What were they saying? Oh, she got what she wanted. She's pretending to mourn her husband. But look at the catch she has. Can you imagine the talk? But after the time of mourning, she goes to the palace and she gives birth. Now, just imagine those early months in the palace. Because David, we have to admit, had a household of wives. Yes, our David, the man after God's own heart. Do you know that Bathsheba was number eight? Michal was number one. Abigail was number two. Then there's a list of others that just get and also mentioned in Scripture. And then he had other concubines. Scripture In Scripture, God never, never approved of polygamy. But the culture did. It was quite common in the culture. And so imagine moving into the house where there may have been other women there judging Bathsheba. 
you know, I often give the life stress inventory to women who come in for coaching. And if they're under a lot of stress, we just kind of want to see where they are on that stress inventory. And as you look at the list, you get points for things that are stressful in your life. And then it tells you how stressed you are when you add up the numbers. And I'm thinking of David and Bathsheba, and they would be off the charts, wouldn't they, with stress in their life. There has been a marital affair. There's been betrayal. There's been murder. There's been a cover-up. There has been a, a, a spousal loss. All of these things happening in their lives as they're starting off. Well, Bathsheba does become his wife, and she bears him a son. Life changed in a seeming instant for them. In the blink of an eye, she's out of her home, she's lost her husband, and she is in the palace. And David's life has changed as well. Have you ever made a a bad decision and then shocked at the reality of the consequence of it? See, David was going to have to eventually deal with the consequence of his decision. So they, they moved in and they had the baby. And then time passes, weeks pass, months pass. David has shown no remorse for what he has done. But God, in his measureless grace and mercy, always sends a way for us to go back to him. We never quite know how that's going to look, but he always finds a way to make sure we know we can go back to him. David used the prophet Nathan. And so God used the prophet Nathan to go to David and confront him with his sin. See, one of the roles of the prophets in the Old Testament was to confront sin. That was one of their jobs is to identify it and call it out. God would speak to the prophets and he would ask the prophets to take the message to the people and have them recognize their sin and and turn back from their evil ways. And this had gone on in Israel for centuries. And the prophets weren't usually received well. But God is going to use Nathan to pour into David and show him what his sin was. David had become callous to his sin. It's been nearly a year, and David seems hardened to his sin. David had moved on without dealing with his sin. David had blinders on. There, was a, there were a couple of college roommates who had had a really tough exam in college. <clears throat> and they headed out to the tavern to have a few beers and, and relax. And when they parked the car, the rider pointed out that parking is prohibited in this area. Well, he's the one that usually lent the money to pay his roommate's large collection of parking fines. And, and so he was really annoyed by this. But the driver said, oh, don't worry. I won't be getting any parking tickets ever again. And so this passenger said, what do you mean? How how do you figure that out? Well, the guy says, well, I looked all of this up. And and I came up with a solution that's going to eliminate any further encounters with the law. He walks away and shouts out over his shoulder, 
I took the windshield wipers off the car. <laughs> That's a classic way of how we want to deal wrongly with sin. Quite often, we just keep going on sinning, and we try to skirt around the consequences. And instead of dealing with the real problem, we, we work really hard at inventing ways to just get away with it. We, too, take the windshield wipers off. Not happening, not happening. It's gone away. No consequences. I see nothing here. But it never really works that way when we violate God's laws. You know, we saw that David had tried to cover up what he did that was wrong. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says, The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was wrong. David had not reckoned on the fact of what we read in Hebrews. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. David hadn't reconciled himself with that truth. He just chose to move on without repentance. Well, here is what he hears. David, I anointed the, you as king. David, I delivered you from Saul. I gave you Israel. I gave you Judah. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? So Nathan is confronting David with what he had done. He calls sin, sin. This is what had happened to Saul when Samuel called sin, sin. And Saul refused to acknowledge that. He refused to accept that. He refused to repent. Let's see what happens with David. Nathan ends up telling David a story. He tells him about this really rich man who abused the poor people. He abused a poor man by, by taking his lamb and killing it and preparing it for a guest. He took something that wasn't his and gave it away to someone else. David was outraged. David was outraged that somebody could be so callous. But then Nathan says four words to him that changed the course for David. He said, you are that man. See, that's what happens when we sin and someone points out that we may have not gone in the right path. They're telling us, you're the man, you're that one, you're that woman. David was hit in the face with the truth. Well, there are consequences to our bad choices. Nathan gives this word from the Lord. These are really harsh things to hear. Because of what you have done, 
This is what the Lord is saying. I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. David's sins were coming back to haunt him. See, David didn't get to a, a course correction. Someone had to point it out to him. Instead of looking at his own conscience, instead of having that awareness of what he had done, because his alignment was out of sorts. When he was told, you're the man, David was humble. He was brokenhearted. And David asked forgiveness. He responds with three simple words, I have sinned. David recognized his wrongdoing. Nathan continues to converse with David and assures him that God will forgive him. David and Bathsheba have to go through a series of consequences, and David experiences them for many decades to come. They lose their little baby. We're not sure about all the details of that, but we do know that baby dies. David is going to face uh, tragedies with his own other children. He's going to have a hard time in his kingdom. But God, through his grace and mercy, shows up even when we do wrong. See, God allowed Bathsheba to get pregnant again. And she gave birth to this baby, and they named him Solomon. Solomon is the one who is successor to David's throne. Solomon is the one who will build the temple. This story about David and Bathsheba is one of sin. It's one of cover-up. It's one of condemnation and consequences. But it's also a story of healing. It's a story of restoration. It's a story of growth. It's a story of getting back on the right path, the path of righteousness, and God making sure we know the way forward. After we failed, David failed and found the way forward through his repentance. David wrote a beautiful psalm, perhaps the most beautiful psalm, that is the clearest example of repentance in Scripture. It is Psalm 51. This is the psalm where he expresses his true sorrow for what he did. He expresses sorrow for his adultery, for his murder, for the cover-up. See, this is very unlike Saul's story. We don't have a book of the Psalms of Saul, do we? Because he never did get to that point of repentance. But look at what David says in verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stains of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Right living in God only comes through a clean heart and a clean spirit. 
That's what he's asking for. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but do this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Look at the three requests he makes to God. Create a pure heart in me. Renew my spirit and restore my joy. All our sin is a heart issue. It, us of, it uh, robs us of the peace of the Spirit and the joy that God wants us to have. And that's what David recognized. And when we sin, we want to ask God to wash us clean from what we've done and give us that pure heart and a renewed spirit and restore our joy. David understood he had broken his relationship with God. But the good news is God always brings us back. He welcomes us back. All the stories of Scripture show the links God goes to to bring his children back to him. Remember, he sent a flood to destroy the earth so he could start again with the human race. That's how far sin had gone and how the links God was going to to bring us back to him. He parted that Red Sea, didn't he? He stopped the water from flowing in the Jordan River. He gave humankind chance after chance to turn away from evil. And we see he did this with David too. In Psalm 32, David expresses the joy of his forgiveness. God gave him forgiveness. And we read, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. And then we read in Psalm 32, verse 10, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts him. See, God wants, us to get, wants to give us that second chance. He wants us to make the turn back to him when we've turned away from him. See, he doesn't want us to live in that sin. He wa he's put it out of sight. He wants us to put it out of sight and move forward after our failures. Look at the consequences of sin. Everything went well for David until his sin with Bathsheba. And then we see the whole series of consequences. See, even when he forgives, he doesn't always eliminate the consequences. His baby dies. His, his daughter in the future is going to be raped. His son Absalom is going to rebel against him. And he's going to try to take his throne. Absalom is going to die, and then there's going to be another rebellion and another. But with each of those consequences, David chose not to become bitter and angry, but to face it head on and move forward. David truly loved God. He could get back on a correction course. And his son Solomon became the wisest man who ever lived and was in the lineage of Jesus. And do you know that Bathsheba, our Bathsheba, the girl next door, is one of five women mentioned in Scripture 
in the genealogy of Jesus. There is redemption. Over and over, we see God showing up in the lives of those that we consider the worst sinners ever. God deposited grace in David's life. And, and let's not forget this, that David is right there in the middle of the list of the hall of faith in Hebrews. And, and you know, there's not an asterisk next to his name that says, oh, except for that time, he. No, because David turned back to the Lord. You know, we probably think of our catalog of sins and we recognize where we have failed and we have turned away. But once we ask God for that forgiveness, it's out of sight from him. And so I look around this room and I see a lot of women who are going to be listed in a hall of faith as well. You too have faced some really enormous challenges in your life. You've had many opportunities to either turn away or turn toward God. And, and so I know so many of you and I know your journeys are turning to Christ running to him instead of away from him. Those are the ones who are going to be in that hall of faith that when you take your eyes off, you get your eyes back on, you turn back toward God. Those will be in the hall of faith. Well, David now has an opportunity to teach his son Solomon the ways of truth, the way, ways of God. He wants him to follow God's laws and to be obedient. He consistently reminds Solomon to obey God. He prayed for his son to be faithful. And isn't that what every parent does? Pray for our children to be faithful. Uh, here's a prayer that I um, learned many years ago to pray for my children and grandchildren. It's in four parts that they will grow in love, first of all. They will make wise decisions, they will live with moral principles, and they will become like Jesus. Those four things to pray for the next generation, and this is what David was doing. And then when David is very old and he's near his death, he gives Solomon this instruction, take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to me. David's death ends his 40-year reign and Solomon then takes control of his kingdom. Solomon will have his own challenges to face and his own journey with God will be tested many times. But for David, David was a man after God's own heart. And even after egregious sins, he came back to the Lord. There are some lessons we can learn from this story. Number one is, these are some practical things that we've heard many years and I'm just connecting them to this scripture. You know how our parents told us, you need just to be at the right place at the right time. Don't be where you're not supposed to be. And this is the story of, for David. He was not where he needed to be. David should have been on the battlefield instead of on the rooftop. Number two, stop while you're ahead. 
David's lead up to committing adultery with Bathsheba is how we can find ourselves when we don't stop while we're ahead. David didn't stop soon enough. He kept going on and on and on with his sins. Number three, bad things can happen to good people. Uriah was a man of integrity. He had proven himself to be a good man. We saw it in what we read, and he ended up losing his life because of David. Bad things can happen to good people. Number four, there are consequences to our actions. We should know that repenting does not exempt us from the consequences, and we saw that in David's life. There was this little boy visiting his grandparents, and he was given his first slingshot. He had so much fun playing in the woods, and he would take aim, and he had let that stone fly, but he never hit a thing. Then he was on his way home for lunch, and he cut through the backyard, and he saw his grandmother's pet duck. He took aim, and he let that stone fly, and it went straight to his mark, and to his horror, the duck fell dead. Well, the boy panicked. In desperation, he took the dead duck, and he hid it in the woodpile. Then he saw his sister Sally standing at the corner of the house. She had seen the whole thing. They went into lunch. Sally said nothing. After lunch, Grandmother said, Okay, Sally, let's clear up the, clear off the table. Let's do the dishes. And Sally said, Oh, Grandmother, Johnny said he wanted to help you in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered to him, Remember the duck. So Johnny did the dishes, and later in the day, Grandfather called the children to go fishing. Grandmother said, I'm sorry, but Sally can't go. She has to stay here with me and help me clean the house and get supper. Sally smiled and said, that's all been taken care of already. Johnny said he wanted to help today, didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered, remember the duck. This went on for several days, and Johnny did all the chores, and his and, and those assigned to Sally, and finally he just couldn't take it any longer, and he went to his grandmother. He confessed it all. She took him in her arms, and she said, I know, Johnny. I was standing in the kitchen window, and I saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. And knowing that I love you, and I will always forgive you, I just remembered how long it was going to take you to realize that Sally was making a slave of you. When we don't confess our sins, we become slaves to our guilt. There's no need to do that, is there? <clears throat> we have a loving Father who welcomes us into his arms when we turn to him. He's full of grace and mercy and compassion. You know, he may deal with us pretty severely, but he will forgive us, and he wants us to move forward. And look at what he ends up doing in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose.
Let's not remove the windshield wipers. Let's confess to God and let's receive his forgiveness and do the next right thing and leave it behind and move forward like David. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this story of David from capturing the ark and moving it and then repenting from the way he handled that to the story of David and Bathsheba and what we learned about the progression of sin, hiding the sin and holding on to the guilt and becoming callous and then eventually when it's noted to us, we give it up and give it over as David did. Help us to take this story to heart. Help us to be reminded that you're always willing to receive us and you'll always guide us to do the next right thing. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.